Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website, aiming to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me again this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. Hey, Ian. Hello, everyone. This week, uh, the topic was actually prompted by question that I got asked on Facebook, which I thought was interesting. Um, I apologize, I'm going to mispronounce your name. It's Dag Uwe Vareberg, I think, something like that. In a nutshell, the question is, how do you discern a good master from a great one? Um, But he goes on to say, if we're assuming that two masters of the same mix don't have any technical flaws, where do you draw the line between taste and good versus great? What I'm asking is probably this. How can I develop as a mastering engineer and not only be satisfied with paying customers, what should I specifically be listening for to discern a good master from a great? And so I'm going to throw this straight back at you, John. Do you listen to things and and even think about the mastering? Does that even factor into your kind of experience or are you able to just listen to the music and enjoy it for what it is? I I think unless there's a technical flaw, like you mentioned, then you really... You don't notice it. Like once I play something back in iTunes, that's, you know, I I pick an album, I download it and, you know, it's, it always sounds like an album to me, unless I know it's like a very low budget independent release or something like that, or something that's very old and styles have kind of changed. But in general, I don't think about the master at all. You know, it, it, it sounds, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's just because of where I'm listening to it. Or because of, you know, it, it's an artist that I want to listen to. It doesn't, it's not really a factor, but it's, it's got to have something really out of the ordinary for me to really think about the mastering on it. Yeah. And I mean, luckily I'm the same. People sometimes ask, you know, if, if doing this job, doesn't it get to the point where you can't enjoy anything anymore because you're listening to it too analytically. But what I find is it, it kind of depends on the circumstances. So if I'm in the studio, I absolutely listen to the technical aspects and they, I mean, partly because the monitoring is better, but also I think mainly because of the mindset of when I'm in the room, things leap out at me. But if I'm out and about, if I just put something on the hi-fi or I'm listening on earbuds or something when I'm out and about or whatever, I don't notice things in the same way. And I think probably the first thing that I would say about this is that, in fact, nobody can ever know whether something has been well mastered or not, because nine times out of the 10, we don't hear the original source. So we have no idea whether something sounded amazing to begin with and still sounds amazing, whether it sounded amazing and actually the mastering made it sound slightly worse or whether it sounded terrible and the mastering made it sound great. Without hearing that before and after comparison, you can't really draw any conclusions. So I guess we can stop the episode there and um, take the night off. Um, uh, But we won't because actually I think there's some interesting kind of nuances to this to dig into. Um, but I mean, one example that I can think of from my own career is a box set of Sandy Denny live and session recordings from the BBC. She was a massively famous folk singer back in the day. And some of these recordings went way back and the recording quality was really variable. Some of them were superb, uh, and some of them really weren't. And in particular, some of them were absolutely bathed in hiss, um, and this was some time ago now, and the the noise reduction tools back then, we had some of the best that were available, but they probably, Isotope RX, would do better than they would these days. Um, and I just remember sweating blood. It was a it was a real 
deadline. So I had multiple kind of 16 hour days in the studio working on this uh, set. I think there were, there were several discs as part of it. The packaging was really beautiful. I remember when my copy arrived maybe a month or two later, you know, it was kind of one of those, oh, I've been waiting for this. This is fantastic. And I put the disc on and was like, oh, <laughs> it really doesn't sound that good. It's, I mean, I had transformed the what, the raw materials into something that at least was listenable um, on these, these really old tracks, but they still didn't sound great. So I don't think anybody would ever listen to that and go, what an amazing mastering job. I actually feel like I did the best I could possibly do. And I threw a huge amount of kind of experience and skill at this thing to get the results that I got, but it just isn't audible in the final results unless you were to go back and compare it with the originals and realize how bad it would have been if I hadn't done all of that work. Um, I mean, you must have that as well, John. Sometimes, you know, there, there are jobs that sound absolutely fantastic. And then there are other times when it's like, you just, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's, it's hard to, to separate like the amount of time or efforts that you put into something and like, you know, stay objective about it. You might love something because you work so hard on it, but it, you know, it doesn't really, it's not really that great in the end. Yeah. Or you might so. hate it because you worked so hard on it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That too. I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's definitely stuff that I've thought that I did a great job on. And then a week or a year later, I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. Why did I do that? <laughs> so, you know, there's other stuff that I've mastered and like, oh, this still sounds great. And, you know, I, nothing at all stands out as a mistake or, you know, I can still enjoy it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the good thing is that even when I go like with that, that sanded any box set, if I go back to it, I still feel uh, a sense of satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment listening to it. I mean, you know, the, the tracks that don't sound so great still don't sound that great. And that's kind of disappointing, but I still remember all of that work that went in and know that I, I did my best with it. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, you're right. Sometimes the, the work kind of makes us feel like it's somehow better than it actually was, or you, maybe you get an amazing mastering result on something that actually musically probably wasn't that, that great to begin with. So there are those times when you think, oh, I'm going to add this to my collection or, you know, I'll put this on the iPod or whatever. Uh, and then eventually you listen to it and think, no, oh, maybe not. <laughs> I think my favorite mastering jobs have been the ones that sounded really good or interesting or, you know, it just enjoyed the music to begin with the most. And, and that stuff has, you know, over the years, that's still some of my favorite stuff. I would agree with that. I think, I mean, the, the perfect combination is when it sounds really good and you had to, to do a ton of work. You know, if, if, if it's kind of really easy to, to work on and, and just kind of everything goes really smoothly, then sometimes you, it almost takes away a little bit from the, the feeling of satisfaction having got to the end of it. But I mean, I guess that's the, it's the same with any kind of audio work. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, I spent five minutes taking minus one dB at 4K out. You know, I'm a great mastering engineer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's other times when when those little changes over over the course of an album actually completely transform it. And then, you, well, I kind of do think, yeah, I'm a really great mastering engineer. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to feel that we have... Sometimes that can be one of the hardest things, right? Is to is to know when to not do something when it's like, okay, this sounds great already. I just need to 
not mess it up. Um, yeah. And maybe that actually uh, is a potential kind of definition of what makes a great master. Um, and, and in fact, that, that kind of leads into the, the next thing I was going to say, which is that for me, a great master doesn't have to sound perfect um, at all. You know, it's, I know we talk a lot about sound and about audio on this show and mastering in general. You know, one of the definitions is to, to make it sound as good as it can possibly be. But I mean, yeah, I would say I did great work on that that box set, even though some of it doesn't sound that great. And I mean, when I just think of classic albums that I've listened to over the years that I think of as sounding amazing, and then when you bring them into the studio and put them under the spotlight, actually you hear all kinds of things that, that jump out at you that you maybe don't like or that you you're kind of thinking, oh, if I was going to master that, I would do it differently. I don't think that stops them being a great master. I don't see how we could say that they weren't great masters if we've been listening to them for years and, and loving them. Um, I mean, are there any examples you can think of where you've had an album that, you know, you love and thought, oh, that sounds amazing. And then when you finally listen to it kind of analytically, you think, oh, actually, that's that's not what I thought it was. It's more like I've grown out of the music over time. Mm-hmm. Let's say um, like the first Slipknot album. I was like, I loved it at first, and now, like, ugh, listen to that. <laughs> and it has nothing really to do with the mastering or the mixing or, I don't know, that, that's the only thing that I can think of at the moment. Okay. For me, it's often the older stuff. So classic albums. To choose um, a sadly kind of timely example, Rush. Um, obviously, Neil Peart just died recently very sadly um and that kind of prompted a flurry of comment in my social media stream and i've i've never been a huge rush fan but i've listened to them on and off over the years um and this kind of you know prompted me to fire up uh apple music and and take a listen to some of the back catalog and it's fascinating listening to the the way that the the quality of the audio changes over the years, when you go back to the early stuff, you know, it's the really kind of, even the remastered versions have the really dry, tight bass sound and the, the I guess not restricted top end, but it doesn't have the the kind of the, the sparkle or the sheen of the modern stuff. And then you progress kind of through the 80s with, you know, kind of the big reverbs and the, the synth drum sounds kind of supplementing the sound and being added in. Um, and through to the to the more recent stuff but again i wouldn't say that the the mastering or the remastering of those original albums wasn't great it's just different it's appropriate for the sound and there's another kind of criteria that we could put i think on a great master a great master has to be suitable for for the music has to be appropriate can we briefly talk about remastering cuz i know that there have been a lot of classic albums that you didn't enjoy the remasters of and some others that you did. Um, and it's probably a lot that you've worked on yourself. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, remastering is a, is a difficult one because it's a real balancing act. You know, you, you want to go with your instincts and, and try and get the best out of the material, but you have to be careful um, and one example that always springs to mind, I mean, I've never been lucky enough to work on any prints, but when you think about the kind of the different sound that he had in, say, the, I don't know, the Sign of the Times era versus later on, 
it wouldn't be appropriate to go back and try and change the sound of those early releases to match the more current ones, which is, I guess, the same point that I was just making. I think the real problem is when somebody tries to kind of stamp a current sound onto a past release. You know, so yeah. the, the obvious examples are you know the, the the kind of the loudness war casualties that we've had recently. I don't want to name names. I think. Yeah, I always feel bad when I do that. Um, I mean, there there are examples. It's certainly something that I get a lot of complaints about. Um, pretty regularly, people are kind of messaging me or posting on my timeline saying, "Have you heard this? Have you heard what they did to X, Y, and Z?" I mean, an interesting thing is that sometimes I listen to them and think, "Yeah, they sound fine." Um, and other times I completely agree that they've, they've been butchered. What I kind of wonder is the people that are complaining is like they have this emotional attachment to the music to begin with or they're hearing it for the first time. A mastering engineer remastering something is possibly their goal is to make a current audience kind of experience that for the first time in a way that they did, you know, 40 years ago, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really, um, I think that's a great goal. You know, that's a great objective to to help somebody hear it with fresh ears. It's it's like if you buy a a, a new pair of speakers, <laughs> you go back and re-listen to your entire record collection. You know, hearing it afresh, hearing new stuff, um, and I think that's a a really good remaster can achieve that. Um, and I mean, you know, kind of a famous example would be. Well, it's not only a remaster, but it's a remix of Sgt. Pepper, um, where they were able to kind of unfold all of those original um, tape recordings and, and get multi-track mixes effectively. And they used the original mono mix as a guide and kind of recreated a whole new stereo mix. I think that just sounds amazing and completely transforms. You know, it doesn't take away from the original. Um, I still enjoy those the original mixes and masters, I think that's a really worthwhile exercise. Does that sound like an old recording or does that sound modern? Like, does it sound like a, an, a, a polish on a historical document sort of thing? I think it's more than, more than a polish um, because of the remixing element. I mean, they, so, you know, they, they've kind of gone in stages. They're, you know, originally they were out on vinyl, then they came out on CD and they were basically flat transfers of the original Vinyl Masters from what I understand then they were remastered in the 90s, mid to late 90s, I think. And those remasters are probably the most polished versions of those original recordings that were available. And then more recently with Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and Abbey Road, they've kind of gone one further and gone back to the to the tapes and remixed as well. I don't they don't sound modern unless you it's a modern artist trying to sound retro. Um just because of the raw sounds and all the rest of it. But they definitely have moved more in that direction you know there's i think they're a really good balancing act um whereas there are other things that you you hear and i'm not going to kind of lay into anything particularly in public um but there are definitely some examples in my mind where the remasters have just tried to make something sound the way it wasn't meant to be and i I do think it's you know it that's a thing that a remastering engineer has to have in their mind is a balancing act between that emotional connection that people have with the originals and the way that people might expect things to sound now. So there's probably an interest. If some student out there wants to do um, uh, some kind of, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you could get the original Beatles recordings and 
if you found a bunch of people who'd never heard the Beatles before, or at least songs by the Beatles that they'd never heard before, and played them each of the different versions and see how they reacted. It'd be fascinating to know whether... You know, I would hope that people who were coming to it with fresh ears would prefer the modern ones. That, that I think, has to be the goal of those the engineers who are working on them. But uh, whether that would be the case or not, who knows? Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to find out. So I think that reinforces the the idea that one of the things that makes a great master is to not get anything wrong, <laughs> um, is, to, is to do no harm. Um, and that's a kind of theme that we could uh, move on from. But one way that it gets things get complicated is when we think about, you know, I talked about albums that I'd listened to for years on, on earbuds, and then you bring them into the studio and notice something. There are also albums where something might not have bothered you originally, but over time that changes. And one example that springs to my mind is uh, What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis. I remember listening to that a ton when it first came out and just accepting the way that it sounded. And then at some point I read an interview with uh, the guy who mixed it, talking about the mastering and how they had made the decision to just clip the masters in order to get a really high loudness level. And now when I listen to that album, the clipping distortion really leaps out at me. Now, what I don't know is whether that's because I had it pointed out to me. I don't think it's just, I don't think I went in listening for it. I think I kind of went, oh, that's interesting. So maybe it's just different earbuds that I have or higher quality playback systems in general. But yeah, I really hear that kind of the fizzy, gritty distortion on that these days. Um, it doesn't actually upset me as much as some people might think it does. Um, you know, I overall, I would take a little bit of clipping distortion over really, really heavy compression or saturation distortion, probably. Uh, I mean, it depends on the material. Um, the Slim Shady LP by Eminem is another example of something that actually has a load of clipping distortion, but still sounds pretty good to me. Um, so, you know, as with all of this stuff, it's not black and white, but it is interesting the, the way, you know, perspectives can change. I remember the first time somebody pointed out MP3 artifacts to me and I was kind of horrified. It hadn't bothered me up to that point. And it's the kind of thing you can never unhear. Yeah. It's all pretty subjective because, um, for everyone else in the world, you know, those bastard flaws didn't matter at all. And th those were massive hits. So most people don't care about the problems at all. Yeah, I th I think that's probably true. Um, I feel like actually subconsciously, maybe they do register that stuff. And, you know, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, the famous one, uh, Death Magnetic, where 20,000 fans signed a petition. That's one where clearly uh, the issues did bother people. Yeah. I mean, for example, uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye um, has some unbelievably distorted stuff on it. I love some of the creativity and the production that goes in there, but I could do without the, the really extreme loudness. But there are so many people who've cited that as having an amazing sound and, and you know, talking about what a genius he is for having achieved that. Um, so, it, it, and that's one of those cases where the artistic decision is to do something that from one from another perspective, you could say is a fault and actually know that's a decision um, and it's completely valid. So it, I mean, you're right. It really is subjective. One person's fault is another person's. Yeah. Is it a bug or is it a feature? Um, yeah. And and yeah, it doesn't have any effect on the the commercial impact that we can tell. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things is that there's no connection between loudness, for example, and the number of sales. And that kind of goes two ways. On the one hand, you could take it as saying, well, that means I can go as loud as I want and it won't matter. 
On the other hand, you don't have to go super loud, which is something that a lot of people believe, but we've talked about that a load and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's get back to Dog's original question, which was, how do we know if we're doing good work or great work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think if anything, over the last few minutes, we've basically been saying that there's no such thing as great or not. But I definitely have a feeling when I'm working of whether I'm pleased with what I'm doing and whether it's going well. And I think that's what he's asking is how can you, how can you know when you're doing a great job? Um, I'm not sure that it's an easy question to answer either though. Um, you know, I mean, there are albums that sound amazing when they arrive with you, as we've said, and there's almost nothing you have to do. And at that point you just don't get in the way, don't get it wrong. Um, but I think the majority of things that I hear come in and I can immediately hear a ton of potential in there. You know, there's there's a load of things that I really, really like. And I'm excited at the idea of, of working on them and, and trying to take them to take them even further. But they're not quite there yet. You know, the could be that the EQ balance isn't quite right or the, the relationship between the different songs doesn't, you know, maybe one of them is super bassy and one of them isn't or... Uh, just in terms of loudness maybe needs balancing or maybe they need more space or depth um, or maybe they have too much, you know, maybe it's kind of too wide and open sounding and the sound needs to be kind of tighter and more focused. Uh, maybe the dynamics need adjusting in some way, whether it benefit from, from more density or more punch and aggression or maybe, you know, kind of more contrast, whatever it might be. All these things that we, we talk about every week on the show um, that for me is exciting. And that's, you know, those are the masters that I really enjoy when um, I, I enjoy the ones that sound great as well, because you can just sit back and, and enjoy the music for what it is. Um, but it is satisfying to be able to contribute to something in a positive way. And I think for me, there's definitely, it's kind of like, um, it's a journey of exploration. Because <laughs> um, you start out with an album and you, and you listen to something and think, yeah, I can help with that. And then you start working on it and maybe it goes the way you think it's going to go and maybe it doesn't. And sometimes if it doesn't immediately, that's a kind of, you know, that kind of feels quite challenging. I could rock your confidence maybe and you, oh, maybe I'm not going to be able to achieve what I thought I could, or maybe, you know, this isn't working out the way that I wanted it to. But on most albums, at some point, there's a kind of a point where things start to work. Usually I'm, it's at the point where I kind of forget about all the technical issues, all the stuff that we're thinking about, and I'm just enjoying the music and it's just you know, everything is starting to flow. You can flip back between different tracks on the album and they, they balance nicely and you play out of one song and into another one and it really works. Um, or, you know, you start to nod your head or want a headbang or sing along or whatever it might be. And those are the times I think when I feel like, yes, this is going really well. And it's pretty rare. I'm trying to think of an example. I, I, I guess there must have been times where actually that was misguided <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you kind of come to it and listen to it the following morning and think, well, what was I thinking of? Nothing springs to mind. I think that must be, you know, a handful of occasions. Well, those, those decisions don't, you know, that doesn't end up on the release because you either check it yourself the next day or, you know, the artist was, sends you a reminder. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's... Um, even as part of the processes. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not kind of looking for things that I might have released that <laughs> ended up sounding bad <laughs> so much as just kind of, it's not that often where I think to myself, well, what was I thinking or what was I hearing yesterday? Um, actually, I can think of one time that wasn't me, but it was my client. 
Um, he came in with a fairly heavy cold um, and said, look, it's fine. I trust you. Just get on with it. Um, but he was a really, uh, he, he had great ears and knew exactly what he wanted. And I actually uh, had some decongestant tablets. So I, I gave him one of these tablets at the beginning of the session. And about an hour and a half in, he suddenly sat up and went, hang on a minute. <laughs> because his ears had cleared because this thing had got working on his, his sinuses. Um, and we had to go back and start revising things because I mean, yeah, there were massive um, adjustments, but just his hearing had been impacted. Yeah. I, I think your mental state, your, your physical environment, all those sorts of things, you know, have as much to do with, with your perception of it you know, as the things you actually do to it. Like the way you're feeling that morning has more to do than, with the result of the master than which EQ plugin you use, that sort of thing. That's definitely true. Um, and actually, I mean, it's interesting because that works both ways. There are definitely times when if your kind of mindset and your mental attitude aren't right, you may not be able to achieve your best results. Um, but there have definitely been times in my career where I've had a cold. Um, and although, you know, I kind of think, well, no, I can hear what I'm doing. I have not felt happy about I'm thinking now back to when I was employed and it's, you know, it was kind of like, okay, you have these two projects to get done today and there's no flexibility. These days I'm my own boss. I can make the decision to to change that. So, but back then it was like, well, you know, you have to do this because the schedule is booked up two weeks in advance. There's no room for flexibility. What amazed me was that even though I felt like concerned when I went back and checked those jobs a few days later, they were absolutely fine. Um, and I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think another big debate that I hear all the time, which maybe we could do for another episode, is what makes a professional mastering engineer as opposed to, um, you know, a kind of hobbyist or non-professional. Um, something that I think is important for me is just maintaining that focus, having that attention to detail. You know, if if there's a day where you have two client sessions booked and you're halfway through the afternoon and the energy starts to flag and everybody's attention starts to wander. There have been many occasions in my career where it's, I'm very aware that it's my job to keep the focus, keep the attention to detail and everybody's energy on the task in hand to, so that we don't waste time and so that mistakes aren't made. Um, you know, at the point where the clients kind of start wandering off and checking their phones and all the rest of it, it's time to take a short break, get another coffee and bring everybody back in again. Um, so like I say, off topic, but maybe interesting. Recently on a project, I was, I started doing this mastering project, like first thing in the morning, I was all pumped to do it, but I definitely wasn't awake enough yet. I started doing some mid-side EQ and I spending far too long EQing the sides um, before realizing that the master track was in mono. So I wasn't hearing any of those changes I was making. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a break after that. I had to walk away for a few minutes. This stuff happens. And, uh, you know, luckily you don't release it like that. Yeah. And that makes me think of another point, which is, I mean, I've mentioned several times attention to detail. You're absolutely right. These things don't make it on the final release. You know, it's, you've worked an eight hour day. You notice as you're finishing up, uh, there's a click or there's a, some kind of issue, something you missed, um, you know, while everything else was going on, it's having the discipline and the, the patience and the attention to detail to, to fix that issue, to, to, to go the extra mile, to, 
achieve what you want to achieve. Again, that's a professionalism thing as well, but I think that's another ingredient. You know, maybe we should try and wrap this up and say, well, what is a great master? And we're saying, well, you can't tell by listening to it because you can't compare with the source. Um, but it's something to do with not getting in the way of the material, doing things that are appropriate, I guess, having and having respect for the material in that sense. Um, it's yeah. about when the music starts to work rather than the technicalities where you're listening to the music, not listening to the sound. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect, but it means it has to be appropriate. Um, it's about attention to detail. It's about focus. All of those kind of things kind of roll into one. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, I think the only people who can really decide are our clients. I mean, I guess if you're mastering your own material, then you are the client. And, you know, we talked before about how that's a that's a challenging thing to have to do. But there have been two or three times uh, in my career where people have literally told me that they the mastered version has made them cry with happiness i think not with um despair or uh, pain if i hear that that tells me that i'm doing a great job and hopefully that the master was great yeah it's not up to us to say oh i'm doing a great job but i think you can trust those instincts that feeling as i said earlier where you get into the flow of it and all the decisions start to work and fit together and you know it's like a jigsaw puzzle and everything just kind of you can see the 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 center of gravity the through line running through the project and it all starts to work that's when i know that things are going well and i guess you have the potential at least to do a great job um i don't know whether that answers uh doug over's question but um hopefully it does (laughs) okay let's try to summarize this for you what's a great master i think a great master is when i just listen to the thing and think it's fantastic and i'm i mean the music but for me the sound is such an integral part of the music that the sound has to be right as well so and i take particular pleasure from listening to something if i enjoy it sonically as well as musically if if those two things are just kind of go hand in hand. It it always irritates me slightly when people say, oh, it's not about the sound at all. It's about the music. But I mean, the music is conveyed by the medium of sound. So the sound has to be amazing as well. And that doesn't mean perfect or full frequency or undistorted or this, that, anything in particular. The whole thing just has to be fantastic. And I think if that happens, when you when you get that feeling listening to something, it has to be a great master. If all that involved was somebody kind of, like you say, lifting half a dB wherever, well, so be it. It takes a great mastering engineer to know that nothing else needs to be done. So, yeah, that I think that sums it up for me. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think for me, it, the difference between good and great work is that you haven't compromised in any aspect. You haven't taken any shortcuts and and you're serving the music. You're enhancing it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a more positive, you know, there's the whole thing of do no harm. What we do as mastering engineers should only make it sound better. And I completely agree with no compromise. Um, you do everything that's necessary, everything that's in your power. And that, that probably is a pretty good maxim. Excellent. Thank you very much, John, for helping out as always and for mixing the episode. Yep, my pleasure. 
And yeah, let us know whether we managed to answer the question in a useful way for you. Please, if you're listening on YouTube or somewhere where you can leave comments, leave us a comment, let us know. Head over to themasteringshow.com forward slash review to leave us a review. Um, We would love it uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you could do that for us. Uh, And it's a great way to help other people find the show or sign up for the newsletter. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music as always. And thanks for listening. Thank you.